Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, beginning reading of verse 36. Just glorious passage we get to look at this morning. Some would say it's one of the very best in Jesus' whole earthly ministry. Luke 7, verse 36. Hear God's word, 736. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged Rightly. Then he turned toward the woman. He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers, the flowers fade. And we're very thankful that this good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. So what a question, you know. Do you see this woman? Isn't that an awesome question? I mean, do you see this woman? 
Do you see her? So do you see her today? Simon saw her in a certain way, didn't he? But he didn't see her in the way Jesus saw her. And not like Jesus wants him to see her. I mean, Jesus wants us to stand back and and be in awe of this woman, this stunning display of of faith here. It's a wonder, really. He wants to stand back and just admire that. Uh, For Luke, this is the most most amazing and wonderful, heartfelt response to Jesus in his whole gospel. This is it, this woman. It's the best response to Jesus in his whole gospel. I'm very thankful for women in our church who respond to Jesus like this. Do you see her? So again, in this section, Luke 7, 1 through 8, 3. In this section, Jesus' identity is questioned, right? And also the kind of faith we're to have in Jesus is considered. And so, in particular, the prior portion really focused on the identity of Jesus. It's questioned. It's questioned by Jesus' best friend, John the Baptist. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Meaning, are you really the Savior when my life isn't what I thought it was going to be? When I don't understand your way of working in the world, are you still the Savior? His identity is questioned. And... This story especially focuses in on the kind of faith you and I are supposed to have in such an incredible Savior. Like, we ask as we approach this question, what is real faith? Like, how do we know we have it? And we've already looked at the centurion in a prior portion of our section. He's a model of faith too, very interesting, a foreigner. And a woman, Luke is saying, the gospel is for everybody. But this example of faith is the most beautiful of all. So the Welch preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says it well. He goes, the gospels are portraits of Jesus, and they also give people's reactions to Jesus on purpose. So we look at the reactions and we are supposed to compare our reactions to theirs. I mean, is my reaction the appropriate one or not? What does that say about me? And so in this story, it's particularly helpful because we don't just have one reaction, we have two people with strikingly contrasting reactions to Jesus. And the story is for you today to say, who react, how do you more react? Like the one or the other? Evaluate yourself today. And he further goes on to say, which I really like, is this, this story is one of the most important incidents in Jesus' life and ministry. Why is that? Because it commends to us what is undoubtedly the most important matter of Christianity, and that is how we relate to Jesus himself. Our, our personal relationship to Jesus Christ being first and foremost. So how do you relate 
How do I relate to Jesus himself? What about us? What does the Lord really mean to us? And so you got a Pharisee who invites Jesus to a banquet. And so in in verse 34 of chapter 7, we looked at that last week, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Beautiful. And so we see him doing it again. He's eating and drinking. And we see why he does that. Luke always pays special attention to the down and out, the excluded. He has a soft heart for those, reflecting Jesus' soft heart. He shows, Jesus shows the grace, the welcome of the gospel by eating with those who are overlooked or othered who are out there. And so verse 34 says, that prompted critics of Jesus. You're a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who you are. Well, at the same time, Luke is the only gospel writer who records Jesus eating in the home of Pharisees. So just like the down and out, he's also eating with the, the socially accepted crowd, and he's calling them to the gospel in the way they need it through a meal. Well, we know it's a banquet, not just any old meal, because they recline at the table. So for ordinary meals, people sat at the table, but for banquets, guests rested their left arms on the table. They reclined on their left side and their legs stretched away from the table, behind the person to the right of them. So you have the picture, right? And also for banquets, the door to the house was left open. And uninvited guests could enter the house and sit next to the walls and overhear the conversation and even eat the leftovers. What if that was the way we did our banquets? And this sort of banquet, therefore, was, was a kind of public service. So a man like Ferris, of this Pharisee would invite an important person over and he would give the people of the city an opportunity to hear from a visiting rabbi and teacher. It was very kind. So this woman in this gathering, this banquet, this woman enters the banquet. And again, it's no surprise that other people, uninvited guests, would enter. However, it's a complete and utter shock, like quiet type shock, that someone like her would enter this banquet. Her kind was just absolutely not welcome. Not welcome in the home of a respectable family, especially a Pharisee family. See, the Pharisees dedicated their lives to keeping separate from all ceremonial impurity, all occasions for evil, all obviously sinful people. Pharisee comes from a word separate. Like we're, we're, evil is coming from the outside and we're staying away from it. So this woman was a contaminant a contagious disease to be avoided at all costs lest she infect you. Like, we got to keep her out. It's quarantined from her. So when this Pharisee sees her, that's what he saw. He saw a plague. Luke describes her as a woman of the city and a sinner. It seems she's a well-known public sinner in Capernaum. Like, everyone knows her. Like, she's the sinner. She's a woman of the city. It seemed like that's probably similar to a woman of the street. She's a prostitute, most likely an escort. Think of Francine Rivers' book, movie, 
redeeming love, I think you probably got the picture of her, this infamous or famous prostitute in that area. So she learns that Jesus is dining at this Pharisee's house. She hears it. It's it's in the community. People are talking about it. So she hears that, and she goes home. And she goes home to get her prized possession. It's worth a year's wages. It may be her nest egg. It's an alabaster flask of ointment. And she gets the alabaster flask and she hastens back not to miss the banquet and enters this Pharisee's house in front of everybody. And just imagine the courage it took for her to do that. What courage. Knowing how almost everyone there saw her, how tough that would be to have their gaze upon them. How are they seeing me? What is it that makes her dare to enter, like moves her to get over that barrier to enter, to have to enter? Well, the woman's never referred to by name in the story. It's real interesting, and it underscores the fact that men have seen her as an object to use and abuse. This no-name woman never says anything in the account, yet her actions speak a thousand words. She enters and she's, everybody's watching her, so she enters and stands at Jesus' feet. Her, her plan, what she premeditated to do, is that she was going to anoint his head with this costly, valuable perfume, but now she realizes she can't reach his head because the way he's reclining, so she's She's paused and standing at his feet. And as she stands there, she's just undone. She's overcome. And she breaks down weeping. And the word for weep here is a word for rain showers. So you imagine what she's looking like. It's this uncontrollable, embarrassing, we'd say an ugly cry. It's Loud sobs, faces a mess, running nose, weeping, weeping right there in front of everyone. And she weeps this flood of tears and this flood of tears like falls upon Jesus's feet, his dirty feet from walking. And then now that she's wet Jesus's feet, kind of embarrassing, she changes course and Luke slows the action down. He starts using imperfect verbs. Grammar people, it's process. Slow it down. And it's like if you were filming it, it would go really slow at this point. So she lets her hair down, and she was wiping his feet with her hair. She was kissing his feet, and she was anointing him with the ointment. It's slow. It's ongoing over and over. Everybody's watching this deep reverence, this affection, this gratitude. At the same time, kind of scandalous to a lot of folks looking at her. 
namely the Pharisee. So the Pharisee looks at this scene, this deep reverence, ongoing, this woman in their midst, paying such reverence and affection to Jesus. And he looks at this woman, he just judges her outright. He, he judges her in his mind and heart. He says to himself, he's not mumbling, he, it's in his mind. He, he doesn't speak, he thinks. And in his thoughts, he has two presuppositions. The first is, A real prophet knows things, and he would know that this woman is a prostitute. A real prophet would. And second presupposition is, if he knows that she's a prostitute, a real prophet wouldn't let him get near her, much less touch him, get infected by her. Remember in verse 23 of chapter 7, Jesus responds to John the Baptist by saying, Blessed is he who is not offended by me. But here we see this Pharisee is offended by the way Jesus deals with sinners. Offended by it. You know, it's a question for us. He's offended by how he deals with outright sinners. So Jesus says to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And it's at this point, you see, that we learn the Pharisee's name. He was just a Pharisee before then, but now we learn his name is Simon. And that's really sweet. You know, it's a confrontation here, but it's respectful and it's cordial. He doesn't treat this Pharisee as a group. He doesn't say, you Pharisee. He just doesn't do that. Simon, Simon. We, we see here, therefore, that, that the story is especially for a person like Simon. And he's challenging him with the gospel. So he says, Simon, he says, Simon doubts that Jesus is a prophet, but Jesus is about to show him he is a prophet, that he's much more than a prophet, even. Like, he reads what's in Simon's heart, and he also knows that the woman has committed many sins. It's now... It's no mystery to Jesus. He knows it. We, we just can't kid ourselves that Jesus doesn't know what's going on. He knows. And so Jesus tells Simon a perfectly crafted parable. He says, a moneylender has two debtors. One owes him 500 denarii, which is one and three quarters years wages for a common guy, laborer. The other owes him 50 denarii, which is two months for a day laborer. But neither, the one nor the other, can pay the debt. And so what does this moneylender do? What are his options? We have several options, but what this moneylender does is amazingly, he chooses an option that no one would choose, and that is he cancels the debt of both. And so Jesus then asks Simon, now, which of those two will love him more, Simon? And so Simon kind of knows something's up. So he's kind of cautious in his response, maybe even begrudging in his response. At the same time, he, he responds correctly, and he says, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, you judged rightly. turns from Simon to the woman. Scene changes. This marks something real important. And he goes, Simon, do you see this woman? I mean, big emphasis. 
Do you see her for who she truly is? Not as a plague to be avoided, nor an object to be used, but a stunning display of grace. Do you see this? Like you, you get the privilege of looking at this. And Jesus makes her a visual to teach Simon through her, to raise her status before Simon, to, to, to teach Simon, to transform Simon's whole concept of what real religion is. And Jesus contrasts three hospitable actions of the woman with three omissions of hospitality of Simon. So Jesus says to Simon, you didn't give me a bowl of water and a towel to wash my feet. You didn't give me a fraternal kiss of greeting on the cheek. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. You didn't do any of that. You're my host. You didn't do that. Now, Jesus isn't saying, Simon, like you had to do that. He, he, what, Simon wasn't necessarily rude. He didn't break protocols. He, and Simon does show interest in Jesus. I mean, he invites him into his home and he lets other people come in. He, he respectfully calls him teacher. One commentator says his behavior is correct, but it's only correct. Yet with all this, he still maintains this standoffish, size you up, evaluate you, critique you kind of mentality. He's, he's distant. He's over and above. He's looking in. He's... So were a host to really be excited about his guest, he would express hospitality in these ways. Simon was respectful, but he was not excited, eager, enthusiastic about his guest, not anywhere near what the woman is. So in contrast to Simon's omissions, the woman's actions are, are nothing short of extravagant. They're like, it's night and day. The whole attitude is different. The whole atmosphere is different with the woman. She's, she's undone with gratitude and thanks and affection. She's cut to the heart. She, she can't express enough thanks. So she doesn't just provide water and a towel. She washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. She doesn't just give him a fraternal kiss on the cheek. She kisses his feet, the dirty part of him, over and over and over again. She doesn't just anoint his head with olive oil. She anoints his feet with this very costly perfume. It's just so dear. And the contrast with Simon's detached, distant behavior couldn't be more striking. And so we see Jesus' ability to distinguish these contrasting reactions here. And we, we see that Jesus is aware, he's observant, he's sensitive to our responses to him. Hebrews says he's the same yesterday and today and forever. He notices these markedly different reactions. And then Jesus gives the lesson, the right interpretation of the woman's acts. And he says to Simon, look, she's the 500 denarii forgiven debtor. You're just you're witnessing it. Her sins, Simon, which are many, I do not minimize that. Her sins, which are many, literally 
have been forgiven. It's a perfect passive. It's something in the past that has continuing relevance and importance. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, literally. And that's why she expresses so much more love, so much more grateful affection for for me, he says. So in verse 47, when Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. The sense is she's already repented and received the forgiveness of sins. That's what drives her over the barriers into the house to show Jesus her affection and her gratitude, it seems on the basis of verse 29 and 30, that she's one of those people like tax collectors that went out to John the Baptist and publicly confessed their sins before everybody and received his baptism and confessed them. And and now she's come back because she wants to see the people, the person John preached about, the person that makes forgiveness possible. That's why she's come. So for she loved much doesn't mean that her love accomplishes or achieves her forgiveness. That wouldn't be the gospel. Her for she loved much is the evidence and proof of her prior experience of forgiveness. It's a logical thing. For she loved much. That's why she loves much because she's already been forgiven much. She's come to the banquet for the purpose of showing her unbounding thankfulness, overflowing gratitude for the one John preached about, the Messiah, who he was not worthy to undo his sandals. The one he confessed is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I've got to see him. I've got to see the Lamb of God and thank him. And this is made even more clear by the spiritual maxim Jesus then gives, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The teaching is if, if, if you think you're forgiven just a little, then you'll love just a little. But if you know you're forgiven much, then you'll love much. And the, the, the deal is that not, it's not that any of us are ever forgiven just a little. It's just that... By nature, we tend to think that. Like, we tend to minimize our own sin. We tend to be kind of like Simon. There are other sinners out there worse, and we, in comparison to them, are a bit better. We're over them. We're not as big as sinners, and it affects our love for Jesus, our sense of need for Jesus. If that's what we think, then we may be interested in Jesus. We may want to study Jesus. We may have a respect for Jesus. We may do, may do what's proper or courteous with respect to Jesus, just like Simon does, but we'll never have the devotion and gratitude and overflowing affection, the heartfelt response to Jesus that the woman expresses. We won't have it. And Jesus is looking at us between these two responses, and he's saying, Whatever we may say about what we believe, the real test of a genuine profession of faith in Jesus is this kind of love. So the question for us is, do we respond to Jesus this way? Is something of this in our lives? Are we growing in this kind of affection for the person of Jesus? That's what genuine faith looks like. And so verse 48, Jesus makes this astounding declaration of the woman. He just, in front of everybody, he just goes, your sins have been forgiven. That's literally, again, your sins have been forgiven in the past. So why does he even say it? Well, it's kind of like the comfort of the gospel we give on the Lord's Day. Where we get to tell you, you know, if you confess your sins, you have been forgiven. 
And so Jesus is, what he's doing is he's given her assurance that her sins are indeed forgiven, washed clean. And he also does that to publicly defend her and recognize her before Simon that your identity is not terrible public sinner. Your identity is forgiven daughter of God. And he does so to make a point about himself. I'm not just a prophet. I'm much more than a teacher. I have the power to forgive sins. Therefore, I'm on the level with God himself. You need to get there, Simon. And so I'm capable of paying your infinite sin debt so that God, the moneylender, can cancel it. In fact, that's why I'm here. I'm about to bear your debt upon the cross that I can just eradicate it and cancel it by suffering your penalty on your behalf. Finally, Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Makes it abundantly clear the instrument for receiving the gospel is faith alone in Christ alone. To receive the forgiveness of sin that issues into abounding love for Christ because it's all a gift. And then Jesus says to her, go in peace. Huge statement. It's a customary greeting of farewell, but here in this context, so much more. He's looking at this woman. It's been so broken, so shamed, so humiliated, but now totally restored. And he's declaring God's shalom over her, his peace over her, his benediction The light of his countenance, his name on her forehead. She's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Walk out in who you really are to this woman. Beautiful. This is how God sees you in Christ, he says. And so Jesus had declared in his opening sermon, which governs the whole gospel in Luke 4, 18 and 19, I've come to proclaim release to the captives. And we see what that looks like right here. The worst kind of captivity to sin and guilt and shame. And he releases her because he's going to take her debt for her and sends her out. Her painful past is gone. She's entered into freedom and new life. I mean, do you see this woman today? Do you see that unbridled affection for such a savior? Even more, do you see her gracious savior today? Do you respond like this? There's something that response, something this kind of faith for this kind of Savior. May it be for us. May it be for us. Amen. Let's stand.